Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm your host, Harriet Hendel. Our theme this month is the harshest sentence given to an offender other than the death penalty. Life without parole. That sentence is exactly what it says. No chance of making parole and getting out of prison. No matter how young the offender is at the time of sentencing, he or she is going to die in prison. And just last week, we met um, two men, one of whom uh, started in prison at the age of 15. So, you know, it, it is possible to be very young. The sentence has been labeled DBI, death by incarceration. Our last two podcasts, we met two men who did receive a life without parole sentence. They served 30 years each, and they are both now out of prison, thanks to legal help and a commutation. Today, we will meet Asa Sharma Hokarel, lawyer, graduate of NYU, and a former clinical teaching fellow at the International Human Rights Law Clinic. It is good to have you on the podcast. Welcome, Asa. Thank you, Harriet. Great to be joining you. You are going to explain to our listeners your connection to the issue of death by incarceration and the formal complaint, I have that in quotes, submitted to the UN. Give us some specifics here. Help us understand. Great. So, hi everyone. I'm I'm the I'm a member of the Drop LWAP Coalition, which is a uh, coalition of organizations and individuals. Many of many of whom are formerly incarcerated or have loved ones who are incarcerated, um, who have been organizing and advocating for an end to life without parole sentences here in California. I'm, I'm based in, in California. And like Harriet mentioned, um, I worked at the UC Berkeley International Human Rights Law Clinic, where I supervised a number of students who provided the legal support to the organizations that are submitting this complaint um, to the United Nations Special Procedures, uh, which will be submitted on September 15th. Mm. Um, so like Harriet mentioned, you know, this is a complaint to uh, the United Nations. It's specifically to UN uh, Special Procedures and it's submitted by a national coalition of, of advocacy groups uh, that I can say a little bit more about. And the allegation is that the United States is committing torture, racial discrimination, and other human rights violations by condemning people to uh, death by incarceration, which are also known as life sentences, as, as Harriet mentioned. And in the complaint, we're actually talking about uh, a range of life sentences. So both life without parole sentences um, and life with parole sentences, but also life, virtual life sentences. So sentences where individuals are sentenced to terms that exceed life expectancy. So essentially, um, when individuals are condemned to spend the rest of their lives and, and die in prison. Um, and the complaint also includes letters from over 40 people, most of whom are currently serving DBI sentences uh, across the country. Okay. Um, what would you say is the reason for the complaint other than what you have already mentioned? Is there anything additional behind it? Yeah. So this idea, this term death by incarceration, you know, was coined by incarcerated people, their loved ones and and organizers to reveal sort of the reality of what we usually call life sentences that actually 
through these sentences, people are condemned to a slow um, death in, in prison. And movements on the ground had developed this understanding of DBI sentences. And, you know, you, you spoke to Rel and, and Ghani a, a little while ago, and so you've heard a little bit more from them about the Right to Redemption Committee, that this idea that at the root of being human is the ability to demonstrate that one has changed. And this isn't, of course, to deny violence, that violence exists in our communities or that wrongdoing exists in our communities, but that it's essential to human dignity or to humanity to allow people to, to atone for the harm that they've done and to demonstrate that over time they've changed. And, you know, the Right to Redemption Committee and other organizers and, and people impacted by the sentence had really developed this idea that depriving someone of that ability is a violation of their basic human rights. And the organizations authoring um, this complaint really wanted to bring this to the attention of, of international human rights bodies. So they've worked on this for years. Um, and as we started thinking about this, we realized, and, and uh, Rachel Ralangani write this in their paper too, and their paper, Redeeming Justice, had, had a really um, strong influence in this complaint. You know, we started to see that this idea of the right to redemption that Rel and Ghani have talked about for a while and that Rel and Ghani and Rachel Lopez write about in their paper, Redeeming Justice, um, that this idea had parallels in, in international human rights law as well. So um, it, the European court had begun to develop this, this understanding that, that under international human rights law to pr preserve the dignity of someone who is incarcerated, they, they need to be, they need to have the ability to hope, the right to hope. So this ability to demonstrate that they've changed. Um, and so, you know, we, we realized that a lot of what organizers had been, this idea that organizers had been developing and had been sort of uh, advocating around had, had really um, strong parallels in international human rights law. And so to deprive an individual of this right, to deprive them of, of their, this basic dignity um, we're arguing amounts to a violation of the prohibition on torture. And um, we want, you know, we want the international community, um, including the United Nations, to call for the abolition of these types of sentences, uh, both because they violate the international prohibition on torture um, in the way that I that I described, but they also violate other human rights issues, you know, uh, sort of human rights laws, including the prohibition on racial discrimination. Um, and the the right and the sort of right to life and the right to liberty that I can say a little bit more about as well. Why the United Nations? Why file this complaint to the UN? Yeah. So maybe I can say a little bit about what UN special procedures are. So mm, yes, UN UN special procedures. You know, there's a number of different human rights bodies. Um, within the UN. So UN special procedures are actually independent experts that are appointed um, by the UN to assess human rights issues and situations in all countries that are members of, of the United Nations. They're not judicial bodies, um, so they don't have the authority to sort of uh, adjudicate issues. That's not their role, but they do have the authority to take up human rights issues, to investigate particular human rights issues in countries, and to recommend changes. So what they, any statements they issue are not binding necessarily, and they don't have the power, of course, to enforce um, their recommendations like a court in a domestic, you know, in a, in a, a domestic court would. Um, but they do have an impact on international jurisprudence. They're often interpreting cutting 
edge issues of international law, of international human rights law, and they can influence decisions that international judiciary bodies eventually make. Um, so in terms of process, you know, we'll be sending this complaint to a number of UN special procedures. They'll determine whether to begin an investigation, which basically means whether they're going to um, ask the US government to respond to the allegations or the issues that we raise. And we're hopeful that they will. Um, and then if, if they make the decision to sort of start this investigation, the government, the US government will generally have a couple of months to respond. And then based on the government's response, the, the special procedures will issue an assessment and a, and a recommendation. So that's kind of a little bit of a background of, um, of what UN special procedures are. Like I mentioned, they're sort of one of many um, human rights bodies in, in within the United Nations. Um, but to your question of why the UN, um, and I think this, this generally goes under the bucket of questions of why I go to any international body at all, right? Um, and I think I think there's a number of, of reasons. I think there's a couple of reasons that are sort of um, centered around influencing local policy and domestic policy and law, right? So we've seen um, pronouncements by international bodies, including other UN special procedures, have an influence on local policy. So one example, one historic example is the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, which is one of the special procedures, um, in 2011 issued a statement saying that solitary confinement beyond 15 days um, was a violation of the international prohibition on torture and cruel punishment or cruel treatment. And since that pronouncement, this idea of 15 days um, or solitary confinement beyond 15 consecutive days uh, being internationally prohibited has has influenced local advocacy on solitary confinement, local advocacy by organizers and advocates, but also um, also by lawmakers. So recently, New York passed a law banning solitary confinement beyond 15 days. So you know you see kind of a direct influence by entities like this that set human rights standards um, in local policy. I think the other piece that's kind of like this is the way in which international human rights law uh, and international practice impacts constitutional law, so US constitutional law. And you see this most under the Eighth Amendment um, analysis of cruel and unusual punishment. So for example, the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court has looked to international and comparative law to make assessments about whether certain types of punishment violate the US Constitution, um, the Eighth Amendment of, of the US Constitution. So an example of this is in 2005, when the Supreme Court held that um, uh, the juvenile death penalty was unconstitutional, it looked to international practice and international law in making this determination. And similarly, in 2010, when, it, when the Supreme Court determined that life without parole for, for juveniles for non-homicide offenses was unconstitutional, it looked to the practice of other countries and it looked to international law. So both the sort of solitary confinement example and the examples under the Eighth Amendment are ways in which, you know, we see international standards, international law pronouncements, including by special procedures, have a direct impact on legislation and, and law and constitutional law domestically. So that's sort of maybe some of the most kind of, that's maybe the most straightforward answers. I think 
Another piece of this is also that, you know, this idea of death by incarceration um, and the corollary, the idea of the right to redemption is something that has been, like I mentioned, developed by organizers and directly impacted folks by um, folks that are directly impacted by death by incarceration for years. And I think we often think about international law or international jurisprudence as being this sort of high level thing, which it often is, that's influenced and created by, you know, states, people, politicians, high level scholars. But the purpose of this submission, I think, is to really bring the expertise of movements and directly impacted people to places like the UN where international law is shaped and have their expertise inform international jurisprudence. Um, so this idea that law and international law needs to be shaped and formed by ideas and, um, and the experience of people who are most impacted by human rights issues. Um, and this is partly what we're hoping to do with this complaint, um, is to bring the work of organizers and the work of movements and the work of directly impacted people um, to a, 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 you know, the international um, sphere and a body like, like the United Nations. And then the final thing that I'll say about why the UN is that um, we think that this is an opportunity to challenge US exceptionalism, you know, so the United States often thinks of itself as a bastion of, of human rights, where human rights violations don't occur. Um, and human rights violations actually only occur in other contexts, mostly in the global south. But when you look at something like death by incarceration sentences, and obviously mass incarceration in general, you see that the United States is, is unique. It's an outlier. Um, we know that the United States relies on mass incarceration. Um, it's one of the countries that relies on mass incarceration the most around the world. And the same is true of death by incarceration sentences. So there was a study that was published in 2019 that concluded that more people are serving death by incarceration sentences in the United States than in the 113 countries that were surveyed in, the, in, that, in that study combined. Um, and it also concluded that the United States, that, that people in the United States that were serving the most extreme DBI sentence, so life without parole sentences, what you described, Harriet, make up more than 80% of those under the sentence worldwide. So more than 80% of those who are serving an LWAP sentence around the world are located in the United States. Um, so you see this, you see that the United States is exceptional in its human rights violations, right? And how it commits human rights violations, but it's perceived often by its allies and in the world as being a bastion of human rights. And so part of the purpose of, of this submission is to challenge um, that U.S. exceptionalism. Great, that you really <clears throat> cleared up, I think, uh, you know, many, many questions in what you just said. But I, I'm going to throw a monkey wrench in here. Um, I do a tremendous amount of reading about all of this. Uh, it, it fascinates me. Um, across the world, there are a number of countries that reevaluate a, a long sentence um, and give people who are serving a sentence a chance, a, a second chance in essence. Um, I don't think we, we do that. Um, once you get your sentence, you get your sentence. 
and sometimes you wait 25 years to go before the parole board. But there seems to be a recommendation by the American Bar Association to do more of that reevaluation in shorter blocks of time. Wouldn't that be something also to recommend, um, you know, to the United Nations or, uh, you know, us as, as a nation? And I, I, don't, I don't see that yet. That is not a practice that we are famous for, so to speak. Uh, and, and also there are much shorter sentences given around the world. We, we give some pretty harsh sentences. Uh, I write to a woman who is serving a 605-year sentence. She maintains that she's innocent. But why are we giving a sentence like that? That's insane. So maybe um, can you speak to that, um, the idea of, of reevaluating someone along the way to see if perhaps uh, they deserve a right to redemption? Yeah. Yeah, I think those are really good points. And, and um, soon you'll, you'll be able to read in, this, in the complaint that we file that actually that is the international human rights standard, that people should have the opportunity to to be, you know, that for their sentence to be reevaluated re after a determined number of years. So they need to know at the outset. So the international standard is that they should know at their at the outset of their sentence how many years they have to wait before their sentence will be reevaluated and they should know the criteria under which they will be reevaluated and of course the their the evaluation of their sentence needs to be unbiased and needs to be impartial. And so based on these standards, what we're asking the uh, UN Special Procedures to recommend is, first of all, an, ab an abolition of all death by incarceration sentences, including LWAP sentences. We're also recommending that the United States should adopt maximum sentencing laws um, and, and impose uh, an end to, to virtual life sentences and, and other lengthy or indeterminate sentences so there, that there should be a maximum number of years that a person can be sent um, to prison. And that in addition to that, um, there should be, everyone's sentence should be, uh, should that someone should be reviewed for parole eligibility within a determined number of years. So there should be a maximum sentencing law and then separately everyone's sentence should be reviewed within a determined number of years. And that, um, and, our, and our final recommendation is that um, or what we're asking this UN Special Rapporteurs to recommend is that at that determined number of years of parole eligibility, that everybody should be released unless there's an evidence-based determination through a process that meets international human rights standards that the individual poses a current and real threat to public safety based on recent conduct. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, the the number of, number of years... Um, to which people are sentenced to prison is in the United States is exceptional. The fact that their sentences are not reviewed within, you know, a reasonable number of years is exceptional. And these are all, and, and even when the, when the time for review comes, depending on what state you're in, if you are eligible for parole or you're eligible for a commutation or you're eligible for a commutation and then parole, um, the criteria under which you're evaluated are often unclear. They're unclear, they're politically motivated, they're biased. Um, and so it's not only about sort of having your sentence reviewed after a certain number of years, which is of course important, 
but what is the basis of that evaluation? How do we make sure that it meets um, standards and it's it's impartial and it's based on um, it's based on you know criteria that we would imagine you know res, uh, respect international human rights. After the complaint is filed, and it will be filed, as you say, very shortly, um, that would be tomorrow. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Uh, what are the next steps? So, so like I mentioned, you know, the next step for the first next step is for the UN special procedures to make a decision about whether they're going to do anything about it, whether they're going to investigate the um, the allegations that we submit. We're hopeful that they will, of course. Um, once they make that determination, they will um, they will ask the United States to respond to our complaint. Um, and the United States will generally have a couple of months to respond to that complaint. Um, and then based on that response, these uh, the UN special procedures, these independent experts will make an assessment of, of the allegations and then hopefully issue a recommendation. Um, the timing on this is, is a little, is, you know, fluid, flexible. So sometimes special procedures move pretty quickly. Other times it can take a little bit longer. Um, but that's kind of the general, the general framework of, of what we can expect. And why, um, two questions in one, why is this so important to you and what's your hope? after the complaint is filed? Yeah. Yeah, I think these are, you know, these are really good questions. I think the reason um, for which, you know, that it's important to me is, is for some of the reasons that I described above, uh, I mean, before. Um, I think it's really important for the expertise and experience and ideas of people who have been directly impacted by this sentence to be shaping international human rights standards. And that's why it's so valuable for people like Rel and Ghani and Rachel to have written the piece Redeeming Justice, um, you know, and, and Rel um, to have submitted testimony for this, this complaint, because they are the ones who have the experience and should be shaping international human rights law that addresses this experience. I think it also, I think I'm also hoping that, you know, this, this complaint can shed light on, can continue to shed light on, and you know, the United Nations has recognized how the criminal legal, the racism of the criminal legal system, the racism that pervades the criminal legal system in the United States. Um, so we describe in the complaint how, you know, the number of people who are serving death by incarceration sentences are disproportionately people of color. So as an example, in 2020, only while only 12.4% of the US population was black, 46% of all those serving death by incarceration na nationwide uh, were black. So, and this of course is not just an issue of racism at sentencing, it's about racism all across the steps of the criminal legal system. I also hope that this complaint will start to help us question what the purpose of these sentences are and what the purpose really of incarceration is, but. But, you know, the death by incarceration sentence is one of the worst consequences of a really deeply retributive criminal legal system. So you you and your listeners will be able to read in the complaint about, you know, there are some other purposes that death by incarceration are ostensibly intended to serve, like deterrence and incapacitation. But 
empirical studies show that that death by incarceration sentences don't really serve those purposes. Um, and retribution is often also used as a reason for these types of sentences. And it's, like I said, of course, true that violence exists in our communities and people look for accountability. But who was it that decided that these types of extreme sentences, these extreme punishments were what was required for accountability? You know, I think crime victims are often used as the reason, but crime victims are not a monolith. Many crime victims are in the struggle to abolish death by incarceration. And it's not a binary, you know, crime victims versus versus uh, offenders is not is not a binary. Um, and this this also needs to be dismantled. Many who are crime victims are also victims of death by incarceration or have loved ones who are victims of death by incarceration. Um, so I hope we can sort of we can sort of begin to but through this complaint to kind of question what the purpose of incarceration and in particular of extreme sentencing is. Thank you so much. Well, we are practically out of time. I really appreciate your expertise, your uh, your knowledge, uh, and your compassion for this very, very key issue. So thank you for joining us today. Next time, we will meet Professor Rachel Lopez, who teaches law at Drexel University. And she is one of the three authors of the uh, article that you uh, refer to. And we're, we're going to put that on our website so people, if they wish to read that long 66-page article, they, they can do so. Thank you very, very much for being with us today, Asva, and uh, we wish you well and hope for good things as a result of that complaint. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Harriet. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Pursuing Justice today. I'm Harriet Hendel. See you next time. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet.